probably out in the industry as well um, and I've always tried to kind of break down those barriers and and try and be as very personable as possible but it's it's not always easy playing that part always kind of making the effort instead of waiting for someone else to do it and I and I have felt that way a lot it's always kind of on me to, to, to assimilate or it's me that has to change to be able to fit into this world, which um, I'm tired of. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Ellie Watson is a Scot who accidentally made Australia her home and an artist who accidentally made coding her career. But Ali's success is no accident. With entrepreneurial spirit, technical expertise and knife for need, Ali founded and now heads the social enterprise Code Like a Girl, which provides coding camps and courses for girls and professionals. It's a hub for women in software development, coding and programming in an industry where women are dramatically underrepresented. Ali, welcome to the Good Life podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. That is some introduction. <laughs> you describe your uh, your journey into uh, into coding as having been uh, a uh, function of being turned away from art school. Tell us that story. Yeah. So um, when I was a, a young adult um, in my high school days, I would I'd spend my lunch hours in the art department. I was always a very creative child and. Um, my ambitions really early on was, yep, I was going to be an artist. That was, that was who I was. That's how I identified myself. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, I, I applied for art school as I was leaving um, high school behind and got rejected on, on the first year of applying and then um, didn't give up, didn't give up right away and um, spent another year doing all sorts of things like sculpture classes, darkroom photography, life drawing classes, you name it, um, to sort of build my, my skills in a, as an artist um, to then face another year of unfortunate rejections. Um, so, yeah. And you're applying to some pretty good uh, art schools, right? I was, yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, the Charles Rennie Macintosh School in Glasgow. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, it is it is widely internationally recognised as as one of the best. So it, it was pretty it's an competitive. extraordinary spot. Yeah, I've uh, I've, I've visited, visited as a tourist and uh, just love that uh, that style of design. So I can see what drew you to it. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, tragically, I actually, um, I actually burnt down. Well, some of the building um, was in a terrible fire a couple of years ago, actually. So I'm glad that you've managed to visit it, hopefully in its prime time. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you, uh, you, you didn't make it in there, even after two, no. two goes. What ended up happening after that? So after that, I... Um, I was sort of, it was really late on in the year. So um, for those that probably can't remember back when they were applying for uni, there's there's certain times um, in terms of when applications are being accepted and, and when reviews are happening. So by the time that the second year of rejections came through, 
I mean, this was like mid-year. It was too late to apply for um, university. But luckily, there was a period called the clearing period um, where universities will advertise any leftover spots and any leftover courses. So there's there's sort of a movement that happens between exam results and course um, admissions. So during this time, they sort of advertise those left, leftover spots. And there was this list of courses. And I, I ran my eyes down it and... There was software engineering and computer science um, on a sort of dual course together. And I looked at it and I thought, you know, I was really great at graphic design at school. I really enjoyed being on the computer. And I think that was just growing up in a time where the internet really took off, having MySpace and MSN and all these kind of um, tools of connecting online were, were really sort of where I, I where I grew up as a young, a young adult. And so I was always very tech savvy and this gave me a bit of confidence knowing that, you know, I was good at problem solving, good at maths. Maybe there was something I could bring to this field of computers and the design of software engineering. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a random choice. And even when I bump into people, um, who, who, who sort of recall me from those early days, they're always quite surprised that I ended up being a coder because that, that kind of, um, very misconception around the, the sort of computer coder being, very um logical thinker and not being very creative whereas um I think everybody assumed I would end up in some sort of arty field of some sort but um I have lots to say on that in terms of how creative coding actually is and but I think definitely from the outside people people assume it's not so I have so many questions about this uh, sliding doors moment uh, <laughs> because we live in a society that talks about the importance of persisting and following your dreams. Uh, and yet in this case, it's an instance in which you decided that uh, two, two rounds was enough and you needed <laughs> to, uh, to leave it there. Has that shaped how you pursue other things? Uh, you know, we, we talk about, there's this whole rhetoric about fast failing and so on, but I actually don't see uh, all that much of it in, in practice. Has it made you better at uh, uh, discarding certain paths in, uh, in your life since then? Absolutely. I, I think it really taught me that, um, you know, there's not just one size fits all. It's not just one path for you. Um, you know, as I ended up being a, a back end engineer in my career, um, which is probably even more further away from the creative side of it. Um, but being a contributor to those creations, it, it, it showed me that you don't have to be the be all and end all. It doesn't have to be this, you're a designer and that's that's a creative of choice, but you can be the technical person contributing to a creative solution or contributing to you know a beautifully designed system or, or website or product um, and, and you may not have to be the actual one with the skills that is the visionary or the designer to feel the creativity, to contribute to the creativity. And so, yeah, I think early on I realised that feeling fast was great, that experimenting and being exposed to new skills, you'd be, you know, pleasantly surprised where you'll find satisfaction and achievement. And it's not just, it's not always the first um, first thing you try. And I think for me, I, I loved art. It was a very obvious choice for me in terms of my enjoyment of creating things and making things. Um, but I realised by sort of moving into a field that wasn't so obvious, there were still ways that I could apply that thinking and apply those skills and get the same satisfaction as I did through, say, something like analytical life drawing. Um, so I think early on I realised that um, it was good to sort of try different things and that persistence actually may have been 
um, not the right choice. <laughs> Although I do always say, say to all the code, the coding kids that come along to our camps to, to never give up straight away. Um, and I definitely, it felt, even though it sounds not like I tried for too long, two years is quite a long time. <laughs> sure is, absolutely. So if you'd gotten into art school, I assume it would have been uh, predominantly women surrounding you in the class. What was it like on your, uh, your early days at uh, Glasgow University in, uh, in computer science? Oh, yeah, I think you're right there. I think it probably would have been um, a lot of more women in, in the fashion design or the fine art space. Um, in computer science, it, I was definitely one of few. So I think in my, my first year, that first computer science class, um, it was it was very, there was just a sea of men. And I actually didn't go in with too much knowledge of how male dominated it was, which sounds silly, but I don't even think I had enough time to prep myself for what I was going into because like I said, the application process meant I'd applied pretty last minute and it was only a few months before the semester started. So I walk in on, on one of those first days of, of comp sci and I look around the room and I'm just quite shocked. And I didn't actually um, consider that it would be so male dominated. I think there was only 10 women um, in a class of about 100. Um, and of course, most of the lecturers were, were men too. Most of the tutors were men. Um, even the buildings were named after men, you know. So it was just one of those um, definitely uh, confronting experiences where I instantly thought, what have I done? <laughs> was this a mistake? <laughs> How did you uh, go about making your way in that uh, sort of very male-dominated environment? Uh, are there lessons from how you managed your way through that uh, university course for others who find themselves uh, as, as the, the minority in the room? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think I took a very, um, a journey that a lot of people will probably go on and, and that was that I remember being quite isolated. That first year was very difficult because not only was it, a really strong learning curve. I had no experience of, of coding and programming. I hadn't, my school was pretty under-resourced and they didn't actually have computing as a, as a subject. Um, they had IT, what was it they had? Information systems, which was a quite different um, in terms of the, the curriculum. But I was going in not having any knowledge, not having any friends in this space, um, not having any adults in my life that had done it as a career. Um, and I didn't know the basics. So I, no one kind of tells you this this when you start computer science, but there's a, a base level of knowledge that a lot of the people already in the class had. Um, so that was issue number one that I faced is just this complete learning curve and feeling that you are so behind that even the lecturers making assumptions about your knowledge was very, very um, disheartening and gave me a lot of imposter syndrome. I, I remember thinking many a time, I'm going to get caught out. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm going to really struggle with this course. The self-doubt in that first year was just immense. And I, I studied really hard. And I remember the first year I did quite well with my grades because I think I was truly trying to overcompensate for, you know, a, a gap that was really clear to me in those in those settings. Um, it was also hard on a, on a social basis as well. A lot of my friends were at university doing courses in like zoology or medicine and they were making friends really quickly. They were going to freshers week. They were attending, you know, the big nights outs and, and the balls and the formals. And I wasn't really having that same experience straight away. Um, a lot of people in my class came from very diverse backgrounds. Um, some were quite introverted. And I definitely identify a, a little bit as an introvert. Um, 
but I I love social I, I love socializing I love talking to people so that first year um was was pretty challenging just trying to make friends um but I got there eventually and, and things really did start to change for me during um my my human computer interaction classes so this is a subject that you you actually do um from your first year of uni through um your degree and there's other subjects like interactive systems and these subjects they really honed in on skills that I felt were my strengths usability user experience psychology design it was all the components that I loved about creating software and designing software and actually had yes. existing knowledge and existing skills and strengths. So suddenly I had a little bit of confidence. Suddenly I was really acing some of my subjects instead of scraping by, which honestly is not an exaggeration. <laughs> and um, suddenly people started to notice as well. Um, people in the class, I think, started to realize that I was very different, but I had my own um, sort of flair to bring to the table. and. When it came to group projects, um, I suddenly was, you know, a flavour of the week. Somebody wanted me in their group. And so I think in that second year and third year, um, I really started to, to shine a light on my strengths and really gain confidence. And we're able to work with a lot of people. Um, and it just changed the whole social experience. Um, suddenly I had friends and they were taking me to chess club and in exchange, I would take them on the pub crawl <laughs> for the very first time. We had <laughs> definitely some some newbies to the to the union, <laughs> um, and it and it honestly reminds me a little bit of like the Breakfast Club. But I say this in some of the talks that I give at schools because I think at that point I realised that I was kind of glad that I wasn't in a safety net. I, I was kind of glad that I wasn't in a situation that felt comfortable and easy because the growth I felt as a as a, a young adult the growth during that time and adjusting to different personalities that were very different from my own and um, adjusting to you know being in a male-dominated environment it just kind of pushed me a little bit to be more open-minded to to make a little bit more effort um, and to have a lot of empathy um for people who maybe were more introverted than I was um, and so I grew a lot as a person during that degree as well as as a technologist um, and so whilst there were many times of isolation and many times of really hard hard learning curves I came out the other end as a very different woman um, and so yeah I think that I definitely always encourage people to to go through those tough times they you come out better and stronger and that was definitely my experience. <laughs> There's also the sense I have that coders really relish their sense of community. And you only have to watch Big Bang Theory to, to get a sense of some of those kind of in-jokes. Um, I think my favourite coding T-shirt <laughs> is the one that says there are ten kinds of people, those that understand binary and those that don't. Uh, and I was just wondering how much of the kind of ex initial sense of exclusion you felt was from uh, a desire by nerds to create a, a strong sense of identity within themselves, sort of inadvertently excluding people who weren't like them rather than deliberately? I think that it came from more of a place of insecurity. I think it came from a place of I was different and um, they didn't feel safe. Uh, honestly, that's that's what I believe. I think that there is a, there is a cultural stereotype about the programmer um, and I I'm lucky I, I haven't seen that manifest a lot in the in the culture of both university and in, in the workplace. But what I have seen is this sort of self protection mode that some of um, my some of the people that I went to uni had. And I think 
what I represented as a stereotype was something that they feared. Um, you know, I, I have always been quite a feminine in terms of my appearance. Um, I've always been very kind of bubbly as a woman. And I do not see these as like flaws. I'm absolutely proud of my femininity. <laughs> but I can see how that stereotype um, can can intimidate a lot of introverted men. Um, and I definitely feel it came more from a place of insecurity than any sort of malicious intention to exclude me. Um, but it's definitely still something that I think we need to overcome um, as a community, as a, as a technology workforce. Mm. I've seen it play out in the industry as well. Um, and I've always tried to kind of break down those barriers and, and try and be as very um, personable as possible. But it's not always it's not always easy being that playing that part, always kind of making the effort instead of waiting for someone else to do it. And I, and I have felt that way a lot throughout my career that it's it's always kind of on me to, to, to assimilate or it's me that has to change um, to be able to fit into this world, which. Um, I'm tired of and, and, and one of the kind of reasons why I wanted to start um, Code Like a Girl and bring more women to the field is, um, yeah, to, to, to change that dynamic. Yes, and I was wondering too the extent to which uh, the uh, your melding of technical and creative skills actually really gave you an advantage in the field. Uh, you know, we know that the left brain, right brain thing is is a metaphor rather than reality, but it does seem as though, you know, a bit like Steve Jobs' knowledge of calligraphy helped uh, shape the early, early design mm. of Apple computers, that your artistic background really gave you uh, an edge in the, uh, in the profession. Is, is that how you've seen it? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I do agree with that. I think that coding, even from a very abstract level, um, requires creative thinking, how you even build your solution, how you organize it, how you name things. It's such a collaborative skill. Um, it's such a collaborative um, piece of work. You never build code in isolation. You know, there's not a single piece of code written on the internet. Well, I mean, that's a big statement. <laughs> but most pieces of code that are written for anything is being built by several people. And there's communication in code and the way you structure it and write it. Um, it should read like a letter. It should be very um, meaningful names given to variables it should um, be organized in such a way that it's so easy to pick up and hand over and that 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 skill in itself is is fairly rare like in, in the technology world and I, I think definitely one of the reasons that can kind of separate someone from being a very effective programmer to someone that's not so effective is that level of creativity and communication combined even in the sort of lowest level of writing your code. Um, and there's so many parts of it to, that also this skill can can bring a lot of improvements and help with the, the construction of code. And so I think that um, approach and caring about people, um, which has always been at the centre of what I do, like I, I enjoy working with people. And so um, I've always been able to kind of craft code and put it in such a way that it's very easy for other people to pick up and read and collaborate with um and so yeah creativity is a, a big thing particularly when you're you're designing and problem solving um you you have to continuously think outside the box with technology and so there's that part of it and then there's the actual kind of syntax and, and le- syntax sorry and learning the actual language that's the more kind of technical side of it of it's pretty easy if you um, spend the time, you practice, you can pick up syntax and language just like you can pick up, you know, a human language. But it's 
that's just half of the battle the other half is the problem solving the thinking outside the box the collaborating um and i think creative minds really work well in that that kind of environment that that when you have limitations when you have restrictions when you have a set of tools um to solve a problem and you can use that creativity to to problem solve it um is really what what separates um, those kind of effective programmers so yeah I, I was really able to apply those kind of skills in in my my time in the industry you went through a, a number of, of different firms, both in Scotland and Australia, before you came to Code Like a Girl. H how did uh, those experiences shape you and, and how did they lead to, to creating your social enterprise? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I have been, um, I've worked for quite a few firms. I started off in a software house. That was my first ever job. Um, and I think always getting that first gig is always the t it's always the, the toughest and it's not you know it's it's not the be all and end all you know I think for me I, I chose that first gig and it was working on legacy software that was like oh, 10 years old <laughs> uh, it was mm. Windows desktop um, and that was that was an interesting experience I only worked there nine months actually um, but it was really daunting like I was 21 when I graduated and very excited about getting out there and getting stuck into real code you know because you're always programming all these silly programs that you need that have no relevance <laughs> to the real world um so I was so excited to get out there and, and um, get stuck in and my first job there was about 40 men in in the company that I was working at they had two offices one that had all the marketing people um, and all the sort of sales and businessy people and then they had a whole separate office for the technical staff um and I was the only woman. I was the only woman in that whole entire technical office. Um, That's was, extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And not just was I the only woman, I was young and um, there was just a whole gap of, of demographic missing. It was, it was me and then these sort of middle-aged lovely men, but it was very hard to find, you know, any sort of form of of commonalities or friendship there it was it was you just I just felt like a sort of fish out of water and I I really didn't enjoy that experience because of it I didn't feel I think I don't I wouldn't say I didn't feel accepted I just didn't really gel in like it was just a, a sort of fish out of water experience mm. um and I also just knew the work like I, I didn't enjoy the work as much I was debugging things from you know that were sitting bugs that had been sitting for three years and I think they do that to most graduates I think in the, in the industry they'll, they'll put you on um, bugs but I I learned pretty quickly that's not what I wanted to do and I think again advice for any young listeners or older listeners who are trying to figure out what they want to do in life um, it's not the worst thing to have a bad job because then you know you know what I don't want to do this and the half of the half of the journey is to try and figure out what you want to do so at this point I wasn't too deflated by my first experience but it did make me want to strive for something different and um, so I then had the option to sort of apply for different things and I, I found this design agency and they'd won BAFTAs and had many awards and they were a small little studio in Glasgow and they were called Screen Media and I at the time I remember not having any web experience and um, I predominantly worked on software that ran locally on a computer so web was a kind of different beast and I didn't have much experience in it so I applied anyway I remember thinking 
hey-ho, like they probably don't even have any positions. <laughs> I'll just apply. This is what I want to do. This is who I want to work for. I want to work on these kind of products and, and platforms that, you know, are, are super creative and, and just, um, you know, really exciting to, to even interact with, um, never mind build. And I did this really random thing, which again, I, I don't know if I would advise it to anyone else, but because I couldn't put together like a website for my portfolio, I remember just making this little postcard size CV and I was really into, I had a typewriter <laughs> for a digital person. I, I, I liked my analog. <laughs> um, so I had a little typewriter and I wrote out this really simple little CV, just enough information to get them excited about me. Um, but a little bit of my personality. And I thought they'd probably get like a million CVs mailed to them every day. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to be old school and mail it, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> mail it in the post. And so this literal postcard landed on the technical director's desk that day and they called me up straight away. I think they had been so surprised that someone even would do this and also they were just intrigued by it and that extra level of effort, I think they kind of, they must have like could smell my desperateness to get a job there Um, and so they called me up that day and they said look we really want to meet you, you know we want to know who's behind this postcard Um, and so I got a break and went for an interview I told them the honest truth that I was completely underexperienced, but I wanted to learn and I was passionate to learn and this is where I needed to be to be happy. And they gave me a shot and I spent three years working in that company and I, I loved every part of it. It was so enjoyable to meet clients, to hear their problems, to solve those problems, to create solutions and be part of a team of creatives. And even as a back-end engineer, I saw myself as a creative in that place. I lived a life of, of creative. It was digital agency land. It was crazy hours, sometimes coming in at weekends. But the sense of achievement that I would get when we delivered um, a website in two or three weeks, you know, crazy deadlines um, and working together as, as a team and those kind of very intense environments was so thrilling to me like it was such a a really brilliant um time in my career and I was learning so much and around a lot of brilliant um people on the team supported so much at that at that stage in my career and so I was really happy that I made that kind of jump into creative agency land um which is actually where I then remained for up to I think I mean I when I moved to Australia I was still kind of working in that same um, area but yeah absolutely loved my time there and um yeah wouldn't wouldn't um wouldn't change it but those experiences I think it was then moving to Australia um so I was 25 and I was still working at that that agency and I I was in a great job you know I was in a great job and I, had, I loved the people I loved the company but I was too young to be so happy, <laughs> you know. I was too young to <laughs> to settle, <laughs> um, and I and I kept thinking this can't be it, you know. And there was nowhere else I liked in Scotland that I wanted to grow and move on to. And I think I think you do as you as you progress in your career, you do get those moments of itchy feet where you kind of think, what's next? And I had this option of you know everybody from Scotland who who sort of outgrow it, they end up going to London. London wasn't my vibe. It was too busy. <laughs> People are too miserable down there. <laughs> and I I was quite intimidated by just how large London was. So I was kind of looking for this middle ground of just enough experience, but not too different. And 
I was kind of weighing up America or Australia at the time. Um, Australia, <laughs> in, on all, in all honesty, was just a bit easier to get a visa. Um, so it came first. And yeah, I moved at 25, worked in the same sort of agency. I found a, a really cool little creative agency in South Melbourne to start with. And um, yeah, I enjoyed that for a short while and then moved on to another creative agency after a year. Um, and again, spent about two and a half years at that creative agency. But one thing I would say is nothing was really that different. I was still the only woman on the team. Um, and having to sort of start new and start new and start new, it became more apparent to me like how much of a burden that is when you're just... What takes usually someone like a week or a month to assimilate, to, to join the culture, I felt was taking me a painful longer amount of time. It was like three months before someone would ask me out for a pint <laughs> or like, you know, take me out to beach volleyball. There was there was all, all these kind of social things that come about when you start in a new company or a new group. Um, and I think being in a minority just made that all the much more difficult. Um, and so I was quite lonely. This was about a year on um, from living in Australia. And um, I was pretty lonely and finding, you know, find myself just wanting to go back, wanting to go back to Scotland. I didn't have a lot of friends. And um, I then thought, you know what, I just, if I could meet someone at work, if I could meet someone that just really gets me and um, I'd love it if there was more women. And so I thought, I'll just host a meetup. I'll just host a little meetup. Mm. I'll mention it to my boss. I'll get a few glasses of bottles of, of wine in. <laughs> we'll sit around. Um, I'll put it on meetups.com. We'll we'll sit and talk about programming languages and, and platforms and knowledge shared and, and make friends with other women in my field. Because that's a really great way as an adult in particular to, to sort of shortcut to a friendship. Um, and so that's exactly what I did, Andrew. I just... I did this um, event, put it on meetups.com and within two weeks we had over a hundred RSVPs. Now I thought I was like this rare unicorn. I thought like there's no other women in this field and suddenly there, there they were, you know, coming out the coming out of this industry. There was over a hundred people on that night. We, we upgraded from a tiny 10 person meeting room to actually booking a space at Bayer 9 in, in Melbourne which is a sort of co-working space um, and so we we upgraded the event because there were so many people interested and on that night for the first time in this whole time that I'd spent in computer science in my job I felt like I belonged I, f- I looked around this room and saw so many women mm. and for the first time it felt like it was a female dominated industry that there was so many of them there I was just like this feels absolutely brilliant. I feel normal. I feel like I belong here. And um, it was electric. It was a, such a, a memorable night um, that I won't forget in a, a long time. But um, it was brilliant. That's how it all started. <laughs> long story short. <laughs> Ali, why do we want more women to code? What's the uh, what's the benefit for uh, for Australia of, of achieving that? Oh, there's there are so many benefits, Andrew. I mean, obviously, from a selfish point of view, it's going to make the culture better for women who are existingly in it. Um, but also, there's an there's a shortage of of technologists. So gro- globally, we have a shortage. In Australia, we have a shortage. Um, so in a sense, women are an untapped resource. But that's kind of taking the emotion right out of it. What I would say is though, 
they have such different lives. Like we've been conditioned all very differently and particularly men and women are conditioned from such a young age differently. They, they live different lives. We have different bodies, different experiences, different perspectives. And so even just the the presence of a woman will help you build a better product, will help mitigate risks of that product ending out too biased because when you have one set you know of people from the same sort of background building a product there will be so many biases that you can't see there'll be so many blind spots and so by having a woman on your team sounds like the uh, apple watch designers could have uh, done with a few more women on the uh, on the team when they were first launching you're sure right there andrew um so those that don't know the apple watch when it was first launched um didn't have a menstruation tracker now this is something that tracks everything from your heart rate to your you know, I think that your iron levels or something, it does all this amazing stuff, but they completely forgot, but they have remedied it. <laughs> so that's good. Um, but there's there's lots of um, examples of this. And there's a, actually a brilliant book that I've, I'm sort of halfway through called Invisible Women. And it's by a woman called Caroline Perez. And she, she makes this very evidence-based um, sort of insights into this missing data gap so it's not just that we don't have women not on the team to mitigate these problems but also the data is very male skewed it's all sort of even our medical historical data it's all sort of default male um there was an interesting interesting case study actually around like the top 12 pianists so piano players um internationally acclaimed only two were women um but when they actually measured the hand spans they realized that the standard keyboard was made to the hand span of the average male. And so women, of course, are not able to reach their full potential when the whole world has been designed on the sort of default male attributes. And I think this is really the key issue that we have in technology today is we're building models, we're building algorithms, we're building a whole, you know, and artificial intelligence that is supposed to represent humans in decision making and societal functions and the problems is sexism and discrimination and biases are being seeped into these models and not only are they being reproduced they're being amplified because these algorithms are sort of teaching themselves the biases and the biases and amazon was a perfect example of this where they tried to teach their their sort of HR robot, their recruitment robot, how to sort of read CVs and and sort of, um, you know, get through all these many, many CVs that they must get on a daily basis and try and work out who's who's worthy of an interview and who's not. And because they got so many male CVs in comparison to to women applying, the algorithm began to learn that men made made better programmers. And so they started refusing... (laughs) They started refusing CVs on the basis that it was from a woman. And so this is happening more and more. Um, Even recently, there was a a pretty terrifying article where a man in America, a black man in America, was wrongfully accused, held overnight, interrogated by the police over a flawed facial recognition um, technology, which wrongly identified him as a criminal this poor innocent man absolutely minding his own business had to endure this horrible experience because we are using technology that is not ready that is not ready it's not been built diversely it has been used um non-diverse data sets and so we're using this kind of technology in cars and security um, at airports like it's pretty terrifying that 
um, with kind of putting it out in the world, to be honest. Um, so I, I honestly believe there's just never been a more urgent time to, to us to really assess this workforce and ex- assess the, the practices and the data sets to avoid these kind of biases. And so that's probably the number one reason why I think if we had more women in tech, um, we, would, we would instantly sort of be one step closer to mitigating these. Yes, and Cathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction has a whole host of examples of, uh, of algorithms gone wrong, in part because of the lack, <laughs> of, the lack of diversity in the, uh, in, in the teams that, uh, that lead to them. But I'm, I'm curious too, because I did an interview recently with a feminist, Cordelia Fine, uh, who was talking about the, the notion of benevolent sexism and, and just pointing out that we need to be careful as feminists in not uh, assuming that there is some inherently female way of, of doing things which is invari- invariably better. Uh, so uh, And, and recognising that uh, much of the value comes from diversity. Uh, and that I would have thought... Um, male programmers uh, also stand to benefit from being in a more diverse workplace. You know, if you're a you're a male who would like to take some parental leave when your child's born, presumably the norms are going to shift faster if there's a bit of diversity. Uh, and if you're producing things in a, in a more diverse team, you're going to learn more than if you're, uh, you're producing in a homogenous team. There's all kinds of different ways in which uh, having diversity in the workplace makes everyone better off. Absolutely, Andrew. I think you're right there. Definitely reversing those sort of social norms benefits everybody. Um, And I think particularly men, even more so in this modern society, are are looking for more flexibility. We'd love the option of part-time. And so by creating a flexible workplace, it really does benefit everybody. So I think you're right on there. How do you tell the story of your your love of coding? When you're starting uh, one of your three-day coding camps with young girls, what sorts of things do you say at the outset (laughs) to inspire them about becoming a coder? (laughs) Um, I tell them that it's their tool, that it's their paintbrush. Um, You know, I hold up a laptop and I'm like, this isn't just a laptop. This is your, you know, your key to, to your future. It's um, you're unlocking opportunities, you're, you're building whatever comes to mind. Um, you, you know, it's, it's really an empowering skill. Um, we show the girls, so what, I'm, what are my, some of my favourite things to do at the camps is piecing the, those missing gaps of information. They've, they've obviously seen Big Bang Theory or they've, you know, they've read about Mark Zuckerberg, but I think they forget the power of this technology, the scalability, the ability to just even solve important problems. And I think that comes back again to that diversity piece of we care about problems that we've experienced. We're very selfish in, in some sense, you know. It, it takes a, there's definitely a few um, altruistic people out there, but from from a large part, we we usually sort of are passionate about things that have affected us personally. And so there's a lot of um, sort of privileged and affluent people in this technology uh, workforce. You know, predominantly they come from university backgrounds and. Predominantly, that kind of means that they've they've had a, a pretty secure upbringing or um, have the sort of financial means to do so. Um, and which is why I think we end up with Uber and pizza delivery services and, um, you know, laundry services. And there's there's so much more to the world. Right. Silicon Valley is very good at solving the problems of middle class white blokes. Exactly. Um, and so what I love showing the girls at our camps is this connection of purpose um, and problem solving and using tech as a tool. Um, so we've had camps that 
we went into the wilderness is a, a perfect example of a theme. So we come up with all these different themes during our camps and, and we build curriculums around these themes. Um, our recent one is Head, Shoulders, Knees and Code, which talks about all the medical. <laughs> <laughs> we're great at puns. That's another thing we're good at at Code Like a Girl. Give us, give us the, <laughs> we're brilliant at coding puns and coming up with funny names. So Into the Wilderness teaches kids. I'm a dad, so, so keep, the, keep the dad jokes coming. <laughs> so Into the Wilderness talks about, you know, the conservation of endangered species and how data, big data is being used to, to monitor climate change. It's showing them that tech goes beyond, you know, your your Facebook. Um, it's connecting them with purpose, um, which I think really resonates with a younger generation. I think we're definitely seeing a whole generation of kids come through that are facing some of our big scariest problems. And so by empowering them and saying to them, here's someone who's, who's you know, solving cancer and, and doing cancer research, who's, here's another woman who's using mathematics to um, cure malaria, and so we're kind of putting these mentors and female role models in front of them and showing them how purpose um, and problem solving and technology combined is is such a fulfilling career. So it's definitely changing that narrative that they might have already received around technology, being that it's just, you know, nerdy guys coding away. It's, it's just not like that at all. So we're really trying to connect that and, and bridge that gap of missing information, which I think... Um, is really effective strategy and it really inspires them and um, it's really amazing like to see these kids and their beautiful creations they're all different from each other they're all unique in their own sense and have their own passions and own their own um hobbies and interests and we celebrate that we celebrate the individualism of of these kids and these girls because the messaging that they often get is like that kind of like girls are certain things and they have these certain attributes but the true nature of it is is no one person is the same and everybody has a problem they want to solve or a passion they have to pursue and coding is your paintbrush coding is your tool to 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 really solve that problem so that's that's definitely how we inspire and how we position it um and that is always really really effective i want to ask you about languages uh, i mean i can only do a, a little bit of html and uh uh, program in a statistical programming <laughs> language stata but uh, what's what's your favorite language for programming yourself and, and what's your favorite uh, language for teaching uh, a beginner yeah um so mine has changed over the years so when i was at uni i learned python and java um, i learned a little bit of c and i learned that i didn't like it <laughs> so c um <laughs> So Python's kind of the, the uh, Google-focused language. Java underlies a whole lot of the apps on the, yep. uh, on, on the internet. Uh, and then C's sort of more uh, uh, Windows uh, devices, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. So C sharp is different from C. There's there's all these. They're not very great at their naming. So C. Um, the things I don't like about C is it's it, you have to handle a lot of the memory allocation yourself. So some languages are super helpful. Um, and what I'm talking about just now is actually high level languages so you'll you'll get different layers to a computer you know very 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 low 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 down you've got your binary your zeros and ones which the electronics understand then you've got the one up from that which is assembly language that's really not fun to program <laughs> if you've ever done electronics it's a it's a real headache um, and very like takes forever whereas high level language um for those that don't know is is 
human readable. So often people joke that code is gibberish, but actually it's, it is very readable if you sort of understand some of the concepts. And it's it's made that way so that we as humans can program and read and write languages to, to communicate and instruct a computer on what we want to do. Um, so high level languages that I enjoy and, and it, actually there's a bit of a there's this kind of nerdy <laughs> debate around whether html and css is actually a programming language right. <laughs> you know technically it's a markup language um which again like i don't see it that way i, I definitely recognize that it's still it's still code right <laughs> um but i think html css and javascript is always my number one for any beginners because really easy to pick up you can get started quite quickly so say you're you're learning for a week you could probably learn enough basics to build something um, especially if you're quite design orientated you, you could probably create something very simple but very effective quite quickly um, that's my sort of recommendation if you're if you're a kind of short term need something to to work right away um, i definitely recommend you in that space Better than better than Ruby. I mean, Ruby was designed for, uh, for for beginners, right? Yeah, Ruby is a brilliant beginner language. So Ruby is supposed to be really accessible in terms of um, the readability of it, how quickly you can get started. I don't have a huge amount of exposure to Ruby myself personally, uh, but I've only heard great things, and I, I know that um, I know a lot of modern tech stacks, modern companies, definitely um, use Ruby nowadays. It's it's really taken off. Um, JavaScript is a brilliant language. I mean, it used to get a lot of bad rep back in the days when I was early on as a web developer, but it's come such a long way. I mean, JavaScript used to just be a web language. It's There's this thing called Node.js now, which actually takes it beyond the browser and actually becomes a powerful language on your desktop um, from your actual computer, so beyond the browser. Um, it's very portable, isn't it, across, uh, across different very platforms? Very portable. It has many frameworks, so JavaScript in itself is is sort of the, the I guess, the vanilla. The They call it vanilla JavaScript, but that's your kind of basic out-of-the-box. Um, but then people have built libraries, and sometimes these libraries are, are huge frameworks. So you might have heard, Andrew, about React, which was a, a language that um, mm. is based on JavaScript that the people at Facebook, I think, started, um, and that's how Facebook is built, using this one language that has both a mobile native version and also a web version um, and very similar syntax. And so one thing I would say is no matter what language you choose, most programming languages like Python, C Sharp, JavaScript, the syntax is the only thing that really varies. Um, Python can be used as a, a object-oriented programming language, which is how they describe the way that you sort of structure your code and, and some of the concepts in which um, it's it, how to sort of build build apps and build websites. And these concepts are really transferable. Um, so I'm building three curriculums at the moment. <laughs> We're doing Python as a curriculum and C Sharp as a curriculum. And because they're both being used as object-oriented programming languages, the concepts are really similar. So we're teaching variables. I mean, it's syntax is different, but the concepts are the same. Loops. So in programming languages, there's different ways you control the flow of the code. Um, and so you use all these different things like switch statements and if statements and else statements. And by doing this, you're able to create scenarios. So as an example, Andrew, it's like, if Ali you know, comes online at this time, do this. Else, if she comes on at this time, do this. And so you can kind of, that's how you, you structure um, how to build a program. But these, these, these languages 
they're very similar in a sense of they have like our language we have punctuation and full stops and explanation marks and pronouns and verbs and there's a way to structure a sentence and it's not too different in another language it's just they use different words and there's differences but ultimately we sort of communicate based on the same concepts or our same structures if that makes any sense certainly does <laughs> it is it is definitely definitely similar with programming languages but there's there's some that are more more accessible than others um ruby python javascript i think are my my top three there in terms of accessibility but if you want to get a job i would definitely say python c sharp's really popular um and javascript i really yeah you can't go wrong <laughs> and it gives me an excuse to throw in my favorite uh, programming language joke um why do python programmers wear glasses because they can't see sharp <laughs> oh i'm gonna use that one andrew <laughs> So, uh, Ali, in, in your broader life, what does it mean to think like a coder? How do coders approach problems differently? And I'm thinking particularly of you in a management role now, running a social enterprise. Uh, what does being a coder bring to you as a, as, as, as a uh, more rounded human being outside your interactions with machines? That's a really great question. I think for me, it's more so the process of like building software that's been a bit more useful in my career. So um, using some of the methodologies of planning and um, like Agile, for instance, is something that I've been doing early, early on. Like my first gig back in 2010, we were doing Agile. Um, and that's a, a way of sort of collaborating with teams. It's a it's a methodology of getting together in the morning. You've got a scrum master. You you do this thing called planning poker, <laughs> where you you sort of come together as a team and, and you rate how difficult a task can be, and then you sort of facilitate a conversation. If you've got a different number from the next person next to you, it then says why was your number higher or why was your number lower, and it facilitates this conversation about you mm. know. Uh, assumptions that people have made and so there's been so many methodologies I've learned over the years including design thinking which um, for those that don't know is a sort of process where it's very user-centric you know you, you start the whole build of a product by going straight to your user and empathizing with your user and then there's this iteration constant iteration and testing of ideas before you go and spend all your money and build it um, which again in the startup world has become a really popular um, process to follow. So I think that in itself has helped me with the business. I think coding, um, to come back to that question, probably risk mitigation is a big thing. Like with coding, it's very, you know, if, you're, if you've learned um, best practices, it's all about test-driven development. So you put your test up front and then you build the code to pass the test. So you've got this type of acceptance mm. criteria where you know it must do this for it to be successful so you work backwards if that makes sense and I think that kind of thinking of like what is it you're trying to achieve you work backwards in your solution um is definitely something that has has been a great transferable skill but yeah it's a it's it's definitely felt like the startup life and building building stuff with code like a girl is hasn't felt too much out of my comfort zone um, hasn't felt too much like beyond my existing skill set I've been able to apply a lot of my skills and I say this often to the kids that you don't just have to do technology to be an engineer actually I think the amount of successful company founders and CEOs that come from a technology background outnumber those that come from an MBA background um, and I think that speaks volumes 
in itself in terms of bringing those very tangible skills to the business world in this day and age you know every company is a technology company and having the confidence to talk about the tools um, like scaling servers clouds apis like by knowing them and having them in your tool set you could really set up a company for success um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the most technical person the engineer that builds it code by code but feeling that you're walking into a team and you understand your product, um, the bare bones of how it's built and where you can take it, um, I think is very liberating and definitely makes me feel excited about whatever I sort of move on to next. And I think I say that a lot to the kids of just how empowering digital literacy and, and knowing the limitations that exist today um, and keeping your finger on the pulse of what's possible tomorrow. And I think that's what I've always loved about tech and coding is is just that nothing is out with the limits. Um, not really, you know. <laughs> You've been extraordinarily successful with Code Like a Girl and it's grown fast. Uh, and I'm really interested in a decision you made recently to cut out a number of your activities. Can you tell us about that uh, paring down exercise and, and what brought you to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've really done your research, Andrew. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, yeah, look, we, we had, I think with this problem that we face with the gender gap in tech, you know, I went in really wanting to solve everything. You know, there's there's not only a pipeline problem, so not enough women coming to the field. There's also a retention problem. So we're seeing like 56% of women leaving midway through their career um, and not returning so it was kind of hard to decide like what we tackle and because we'd started more on the retention side like we'd we'd started with events to to really bring women together and and build community and, and build long-lasting friendships and networks to keep them in the industry and that evolved that evolved to doing coding workshops to to, to beginners and, that, and those were adults um, we then evolved to doing job ads. So lots of companies wanted in on the, the fact we had this pool of women technologists. They really loved that. <laughs> so we started doing a job ad service where we were showing people new opportunities. And then we thought, well, we'll start an internship program. And then we did coding camps. And honestly, Andrew, we, we ended a year. And I always do my sort of end of year financials. We, we look at what sort of revenue the company had, what kind of expenses. And there were 17 different streams of revenue that we had one year from speaking gigs to corporate workshops, to public workshops, to all sorts. And I kept saying to myself, no wonder I'm absolutely exhausted. <laughs> I am doing so much, the team's doing so much. And are we really making a difference when we're stretched so thin? So I got the team together and Again, reverting back to my uh, days of software development, the planning poker, I made these little cards. So on the cards, we sort of looked at profit, purpose, you know, whether we actually enjoyed delivering it, was it scalable and was it impactful? So we had this kind of score sheet and then we looked at the sort of, I think we had about six kind of publicly available services. We looked at all of them and I had the team just pick three. I said, look, we are a team of three, three full-time equivalents. Um, we cannot keep this up otherwise we're all going to burn out and we're not going to be as effective so it's about coming together to laser focus on what it is we're doing and everybody in the team of like six people we had around the table turned over the three same cards and it was at that point we were like right this is what we're going to focus on and I'm so glad we did that because it meant the more work that we did in those three spaces 
um, set them up a bit more sustainably. So we ended up with coding camps for kids during the school holidays, which we knew, you know, we're spending three days with these kids and they were coming home inspired. They were coming home with friends. Like it was really impactful, hard to scale, but really impactful. Mm. Um, so, so we really felt a lot of um, purpose there and wanted to scale them, which we did. Uh, we, we held on to our internship program, which we've now placed over 50 women in the last two years um, into jobs. And we held on to our events because we, we, we knew that that was the part of the, the puzzle that brought people to us. So how do we find women to teach at our camps? Well, we find them at our events. So we kind of knew that that was the missing piece that brought the whole ecosystem together. Um, and that was the process that we used to, to kind of come to that conclusion of what we should keep and, and what we should turf. <laughs> Ali, uh, to, to wrap up, let me ask you a couple of questions I ask each of my guests. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, that's a brilliant question. So I remember being really f- very fearful a lot when I was a child, um, just around like grades and, and tests. And I think it's not really changed much. I think everybody still has that pressure of, one path is the only path. Um, So based on my own experience, my advice is to experiment, to fail fast and to participate. I think that there was many times where I'd sit out and not participate out of just fear. Um, But there is no shortcut. There's no way around fear. You just have to live through it and you become stronger and better for it. So that would be my advice. Do you still uh, practice uh, your art? Do you do, uh, do do you do sculpture or uh, drawing in your spare time, or is that uh, <laughs> has that side of you uh, been been put off uh, put off permanently? Not permanently. It's been a while. I haven't done life drawing in a while. I, I used to pick that up. That was something I did stick with. Um, haven't done it in a while. Haven't drew any nude people <laughs> in a while. Um, but coronavirus has put an end to many things, including <laughs> life drawing. I suspect. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, no, I, I try and do bits and pieces around the house DIY. I'm, I'm into my interior design, so um, I try and find other ways to express my creativity. And yeah. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? So I I used to be very fixed in my mindset. I used to think, um, you know, you were either good at something that you weren't or, you know, even when it came to relationships in life, you know, I always believed in the one. You know, I was one of those people that, you know, there's one person for you or, or they're not, right? Very black and white, very fixed or not. And so as I've gotten older, um, I also read a really great book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. Yes, I thought you were going to mention Carol Dweck there. <laughs> yeah, she's all about growth mindset and now I am. So I'm entirely of the belief that qualities, skills, these are things that can be cultivated. Um, you know, you just have to put in the effort. You just have to get yourself a great strategy and you have to find support. And if you have all those three things and you want to pursue something, nothing will stop you. And I genuinely believe that. When are you most happy? I'm most happy and I think I might have mentioned this when I'm creating I'm a little crafter so whether it's something digital or physical um, I love being able to create things with my skills so one of the most enjoyable things I've ever gotten out of Code Like a Girl is just being able to apply my coding skills my knowledge to be able to build things and watch other people enjoy those things is something that just makes me very happy to my core. (laughs) Do you, uh, do you do you enjoy the debugging side, or is uh, debugging just something you uh, you, you have to do? Uh, I remember someone oh, once Andrew, describing no one. <laughs> someone, 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 someone once describing debugging as being like uh, being a detective in a mystery in which you're also the murderer. 
<laughs> that's hilarious and so true I think that um debugging is so difficult when you're going through it honestly this the, the you go through one error message you fix that one on to your next on to your next and you know you really do have to embrace that side of the coding world I think I, I read somewhere that you spend five percent writing code and 95% working out why it's not working. <laughs> and so it's it's very like that, but it's so satisfying. Like I think that's I think that's why it's so satisfying, because not it's not easy and mm. um there's so many routes you can go down to build one thing and, and yeah, debugging is uh, definitely just part and parcel of the journey um, and probably the reason why it's so satisfying. So yeah, and and I find once you've been uh, writing code for a while, uh, you get uh, you begin to get suspicious if a program runs immediately without any errors. Oh yeah, uh, go, oh, what, have I, what have I done? What have I missed? Uh, <laughs> so true. What's the most important thing, Ali, you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Mm, this one's a tough question because I'm not really known for my like physical health. Like I don't think I'm particularly. Um, you know, if we look at the whole team at Code Like a Girl, everybody's a runner apart from me. <laughs> but I love nature. I think nature is my motivator. So I actually moved out to um, Dandenong's area in Victoria. And I, I think a part of me probably, you know, misses Scotland a little bit. So love love to explore around here, go big walks. But the trees, mm. in comparison to to Scotland, I feel like they're on steroids here. You know, the, the size of your trees are just, oh, I'm just in awe. I love this place. Um yeah, so I think nature is a big motivator. Um, I unfortunately had a bit of a Scottish diet <laughs> in terms of my upbringing. And so over the last six years of being in Australia, I've definitely seemed to like calm down on my caffeinated sugar drinks. That is no longer a thing that I am <laughs> doing day to day. My iron brew is safely uh, not in my house. <laughs> um, and so I, uh, I'm a, I've got some food hacks that keep me ha- healthy. I've got um, delivery services. So we've got these little boxes that come with all the veggies all the meats and all the recipes which is so good honestly without them I'd probably be on Uber Eats every night because I'm so time poor (laughs) some of the time so having these really convenient boxes and recipes guides they 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 keep me healthy they keep me on track Andrew (laughs) do you have any guilty pleasures oh who doesn't I mean I've got so many (laughs) I'd probably say at the moment I am a little bit I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to say this, but hey-ho, we're, we're, we're live. Um, I'm a child at heart, so I absolutely love the Switch, um, the, the the console, the Switch game, um, Animal Crossing. Yeah. Absolutely obsessed with Animal Crossing right now. Ever since lockdown <laughs> began, I got it, like, I think it was the second week of um, them launching the game. And so if, if anybody hasn't heard of Animal Crossing, where have you been? <laughs> But also it's so addictive. It's like this, you're, you're, you're stranded on this island and you have to, you know, grow trees, cut them down, build things. You, you build your community and you, it's a very craft based and it's really enjoyable as an adult. <laughs> and finally, Ali, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Mm, I feel like I'm going to have to get a little bit deep on this one. So I'll tell you a little bit about where I grew up. I grew up um, having two different lives almost. So... Um, my parents are divorced and they divorced when I was quite young actually um, and so I lived mostly with my mum but I visit my dad every sort of second weekend and um, my mum side of the family very working class um, and my mum didn't really have any formal qualifications she was sort of very common I guess for someone of her generation as well um, and so when my parents separated we didn't really have much and so we ended up moving to 
um, these council flats, so kind of like commission flats equivalent um, here in Australia. Pretty dodgy neighbourhood, not going to lie. <laughs> like there was, on the regular, there was sort of like graffiti, vandalism, break-ins, um, even like, you know, gang fights. It was every fortnight, you know, we were peering out our windows at the blue flashing lights of a police van kind of witnessing whatever was going on in the streets. But um, And we was your mum and uh, three three sisters, right? You're the youngest of, yeah, the youngest of four sisters. girls. <laughs> yes, I am, yeah. And so, you know, laughing aside, there was definitely, you know, a threat of violence that was just mm. constant in these types of neighbourhoods. Um, and I think, you know, for those that don't know much about Scotland, I think there's lots of patches in Scotland where this is very common. Um, and as I got older, I sort of learned more about the types of families that end up in these sort of impoverished areas. And many were like us, just a very unfortunate series of circumstances that leave you know whether it's mums or single dads like juggling two or three jobs while trying to raise kids and so whilst you know the rest of the world looks on and believes that these kind of people you know deserve where they live they're they're probably lazy you know if they really wanted to I'm sure they could get out but honestly it's just not that simple Um, and so every second weekend I got this glimpse into another life. So in contrast, <laughs> my dad actually lived in a very you know, nice woodlands estate in a gorgeous countryside town filled with tourists and very picturesque. You know, if you've ever been to Scotland to visit, you probably visited one of these towns. Mm. <laughs> and so there was this contrast, this contrast in wealth of these neighbourhoods, contrast in the day-to-day experiences that these people were having. And so I was in a u- unique position to observe this sort of gap in um, you know, disadvantage. There was obviously a lot of people in our society that, you know, are neglected, that are prejudiced against. And so I think to answer your question, it was that experience, that that experience gave me an empathy that I don't think will ever leave me. And it's gave me an overwhelming sense of like social justice that no one starts from the same starting line in life and nor are they running the same race there's different conditions that they grow up in and different support networks that they're they have and are available to them and so this whole experience of, of how I was brought up really it sort of really drives me to do it even to this day to make something of myself to build something that will support people from all walks of life and I mean, not saying that Cold Like a Girl is that today, but it's definitely the foundations that I'm trying to build. Um, and that for me is a very longer term vision for this company to to be a, a proper social enterprise that, that really does give back to disadvantaged communities and supports girls um, in particular because the financial gap and the opportunities that await them in a world of technology can do what it did for me. It can give me a life, can give me financial freedom, can give me opportunity. Um, so that's something I feel extremely passionate about and I think is a real anchor to to me as a person and me and my values so yeah just a a little bit about me. (laughs) It's a powerful note on which to end. Ali Watson founder of Code Like a Girl thanks so much for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much for having me Andrew it's been a true pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion I reckon you'll love past interviews with Marie Coleman, Jane Jose and Julia Gillard. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.